0: Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of the Thinking Commercially podcast with me Ben Tricks and as always we're joined by the wonderful Chris Stokes. If you don't know Chris, you probably do from the episodes that you've already listened to, but he is an author of some fantastic books on commercial awareness, but also understanding the city, something that we're going to cover in this episode. So what we're doing, we're covering three stories, plus a bonus one to give you insights into the commercial world and to really get you thinking like you're in business, perfect for students and recent graduates. In terms of what we're going to cover in this month's episode, we're going to look at the city after Brexit, the ins and outs of the recent budget announcement, understanding oil and why its price is so keenly tracked by the business world, and also the brand new supermarket that's opened its doors where you can just walk out. All of this and more in this episode. So a big welcome to Chris again this month. How's it all been going, Chris? How has the lockdown been treating you?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's great to be here, Ben. Uh, uh, and um, spring is in the air. The sun the sun is shining, and the end of lockdown is in sight. So all good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We've had some good news, I think, over the last uh, last month since we previously recorded the podcast, or it might have been just when we were recording the previous episode. Um, But hopefully, people are feeling a bit more optimistic. It definitely feels like a really nice day. We're in. uh, Well, I'm in sort of central London. I know you're just outside London at the, at the, at the moment. And uh, yeah, like a nice spring day that um, we're recording this on. Um, so welcome to the podcast. Uh, if you're a regular listener, you'll know what we're doing here. Three stories each month, um, building your commercial awareness. Really good for students, graduates, but anyone can get involved in this. And then we add on one little bonus story at the end. Before we get started, I just want to say a massive thank you to everybody who sent in questions or sent in things that they want covering. We are trying to get through as many things as possible that you guys want to hear about. We're doing this so you guys can be upskilled. So please do keep sending them in. And one idea that me and Chris were talking about was next month when we do the next episode, um, all the questions that we get during the the, the month that we can't cover in one of the main stories, we will do a quick fire Q&A with Chris. Chris, are you up for this?
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Amazing. So instead of doing our kind of bonus story, um, of the, of, of the month, it probably helps us a little bit working out what to do. Um, uh, again, we'll do three core stories and then we'll do a bit of a quick fire at the end. So if you can email ben.triggs at brightnetwork.co.uk, um, and let us know what you want to ask to Chris about commercial awareness we will try and get as many in as possible obviously if hundreds do come in um, we might have to be a bit selective but we'll try and get through quick fire as many as possible and um, but we've got three fantastic stories for this week and the fourth bonus one instead of this Q&A um, and let's get started <music> So the first topic that we're going to be discussing this week is around Brexit and the impact it's having on the city. It's something that we spoke about um, in January when Brexit happened at the start of of January and um, the UK formally actually left the EU after a long transition period and even longer when they're working out the future deal with the EU. Uh, And what we want to do now, it's uh, a few months on, look at what has actually changed. There's been lots in the headlines about trading volumes in Amsterdam compared to London, or or various things about possibly London losing its influence in the finance world. Um, but we want to kind of see what's actually happened, see what possibly Britain is trying to do at the moment, um, and also give you really good commercial analysis um, of hopefully what's what's happening um, at this time. So I guess my first question to you, Chris, is are we actually starting
1: to see changes since we left the EU? Uh, The answer to that, Ben, is yes, we're beginning to, but nothing that's unexpected. And like you, I saw that headline about trading in Euro securities has moved to Amsterdam, uh, 9 billion volume, uh, and that was greater than London's. But what that story failed to mention is that Daily trading volumes in London are around 500 billion of of all securities. So 10 billion moving across to Amsterdam is, is frankly a, a drop in the ocean. But it was also completely expected because the EU has always said that it wants euro-denominated securities, which hitherto had been traded mainly in London, to be traded within the EU. And, and that, I mean... Financially, there's no reason they, why they should be traded there, but you can understand why the EU would 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 want to insist on that. And the other thing to remember is that the city has had four years to prepare for this, and um, where necessary, financial institutions in the city have set up operations within the EU, and I think what will begin to change is that the EU will start to say this to these institutions, you can't just have a kind of brass plate operation in Paris, Ramsdam, or, or Frankfurt. You need to have significant numbers of people over here to do those jobs, which again, is absolutely right. Because the way to think about the city is, it's a place where international financial institutions come, um, and they are used to moving people around, as, as they need to. So in a sense, whatever changes are beginning to happen, nothing so far, as far as I can see, is at all unexpected.
0: Amazing, and one thing that is talked about quite a lot, so you read those articles about Amsterdam, and as, as we've talked about, it's probably fairly superficial, Um, this sort of change or those headlines that were created probably in early February, talking about the trading volumes in in January. Um, But there's a lot of talk about where London's probably been one or two, maybe in the top three for a number of years now in terms of financial centers, Um, but where the biggest threats actually are. Um, Because my sense is that it isn't Europe that is the biggest threats. There's New York and other parts of the world. So, how do you see it do you think europe's a big going to be a big player some of the cities in europe going to be big financial centers or do you think london's actually competing on a on a far greater playing field
1: it's a really good question ben because i think i in order to understand this you've got to understand what i call the plumbing of the financial markets and a lot of this plumbing takes place in london and this is about clearing and settlement so When you do a a trade, when you buy or sell a a security, that trade has to clear which means at the end of the trading day the two matching sides to the trade the buy and the sell have to be matched up and then uh, usually within a couple of days that settlement takes place which is when you settle the trade by paying the money over and getting the security that you've bought now there's an awful lot of infrastructure that supports that and a lot of that is done in London and the reason it's done in London is because um, what users of financial markets want is what's called liquidity. In other words, the ability to buy and sell without moving the price against you. Um, and this is where trading in the financial markets is not like, say, buying a loaf of bread in a shop where you go in, you, you take, you take the, the loaf of bread off the shelf, you pay the price, and you walk out of the shop. The equivalent in the financial markets is that as soon as you step into the shop, when those in the shop know that you're buying the prices start moving up and if they know that you're selling the prices on the shelves start moving down now the the bigger the market the deeper the market the greater the liquidity and the term liquidity just means how easily can i move in and out of a market without moving the prices against me so the, the risk to london from europe is actually indirect because if more securities trading moves across to european markets that will make london less of a liquid market and that's where trade could move funny enough not from london to europe but from london to new york but the the other interesting thing i think about this is that um, london is fully aware of this the london stock exchange uh, most recently over the last year or so has been Um, buying uh, Refinitiv which is a a very large uh, financial data business so the London Stock Exchange itself it's not just a a trading venue it's also a data aggregator and provider and I think that's interesting because it shows that that the city isn't isn't just purely a financial market there are a lot of other things that happen there which will carry on happening there. Um, and the last thing I'd say about this is, in terms of what is going to happen in the city, it's quite interesting that um, the city wasn't included in the trade and cooperation agreement with the EU. And, and that was for very good reason, that, that, you know, when you look at the sort of things that are covered by by um, the the UK-EU trade agreement, they're, they're goods which are tangible, they're complicated because they've got to be manufactured, they're rules about components and and rules on origin, how they're transported, the whole customs thing, the packaging, meeting local health and safety rules, whereas financial services are intangible, invisible, and they're basically delivered in cyberspace. So I I think any expectation that the city would be included in the trade agreement, I never expected it to be. And frankly, the city doesn't want to be because it wants to have the freedom of manoeuvre that being outside the EU would, would allow it. So, for example, there's something called equivalence, which is where the EU says, if you come from a country which has equivalent financial regulation, you can, you can do business here. And people thought that the city would want that, but it never did want that because equivalence can be withdrawn on 30 days notice. So, for example, institutions from Japan can come into the EU on the basis of equivalence, but the EU reserves the right to withdraw that at 30 days notice. And Switzerland, for example, has fallen foul of this because the the way the EU looks at trade agreements, everything is up for grabs, if necessary, to uh, achieve the EU's aim in another area. So when the EU was negotiating with Switzerland, it withdrew equivalents in order to get uh, a negotiating advantage somewhere else. And what that meant was that Swiss shares, shares listed in Switzerland, couldn't be traded in the EU. Interestingly, one of the first things the city did post-Brexit was to allow Swiss shares to be traded in London. And that was, that was almost a, a little statement saying things are going to be different now.
0: Amazing. Really, really interesting. Thank you so much for that, Chris. Just out of interest, you talked a little bit about liquidity and you talked about the ability to, um, to you know, move money around um, in the market. How else? Is that the key thing when you're measuring a how big a financial center is or are there other factors that you would kind of look to, to measure the size of something? Also, um, the, I guess the demand from companies worldwide to, to trade there.
1: Well, this, absolutely Ben, this, this, uh, leads uh, very smoothly into the question of the London stock exchange and, and what are called the listing and prospectus requirements and, and Lord Hill, Uh, delivered recommendations recently. Just just to set this in context, um, the stock exchange, like all stock exchanges, is called a public market. It's where people can go to buy and and sell shares. And public equity markets have, funny enough, been in structural decline for some years, mainly because the sort of businesses that in the past would have raised money on a, a public market, a stock exchange, they're mainly now tech businesses that are raising money privately through private equity. And these businesses are not being listed nearly as early as they were in the past, which is why you get these, 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 these uh, tech startups valued at over a billion dollars privately owned and they're known as, as, as unicorns. So why would one want to trade as an investor on a stock exchange and so therefore why would one as a company want to list one's shares there what stock exchanges do is they basically provide rules that they require companies that list on them to fulfill and these rules are all about making financial information Uh, available in a timely manner and ensuring that it's accurate and that attracts investors because the stock exchange is, is never going to say to an investor yes this is a good investment because they don't know whether a company is a good investment or not but by implication the stock exchange is saying if you buy shares of companies listed on our exchange these have to meet certain governance and information disclosure requirements and Lord Hill's recommendations were really, they've really been aimed at making uh, London more attractive to issuers, to companies that want to list their shares, while still preserving um, those safeguards that stock exchanges traditionally preserve. So, for example, if I want to list on the stock exchange, I need to have a trading history, I need to provide a, a, a cash flow forecast, and I need to be able to give you a pretty good idea of what my business is. Now, one of the things that uh, New York has attracted enormously over the last 12 to 18 months are things called uh, SPACs, which are special purpose acquisition companies. And these are basically shell companies. So so you list a SPAC, you raise money, but you don't know what the, the, the SPAC is going to use the money for, because it's going to use the money to buy a business, but you don't know what that business is. In the UK, in the old days, these used to be called reverse takeovers or where you would use a shell company. So um, uh, you would acquire a business by by uh, basically reversing it into a company that had no business but had money to buy it. So in a sense, the idea behind SPACs isn't new, but in, in the UK, because they can't provide the cash flow forecast or the trading history or specify the business. They've always kind of been frowned upon, And whereas I think now it's more likely that they will be welcomed. And another area is dual class shares. If, If I'm a founder of a tech business and I list it, I want to retain control over that business. And so I want a class of shares that means that I have effective control of the business, even though I don't own the bulk of it. And Uh, those have always been frowned on in London on the basis that all shareholders should be treated equally. And so I think that could well change. And the last thing is um, London has always required there to be what's called a free float of shares. Unless you can um, uh, ensure that, say, a quarter of your company's capital is always tradable, then you can't list. And, of course, with a lot of these founder-dominated businesses – There isn't a free float of shares, at least to to that extent. So I think what we're looking at is the possibility of these rules in London being relaxed to enable London to attract more business that would otherwise go to New York. But it is a very fine balance between encouraging more issuers and ensuring that investor protection still remains in place, which is what contributes to the reputation of the market.
0: Amazing. There was a lot in there, Chris, um, which I'm going to try and dissect. So there's a couple of bits which I think our listeners are going to be really interested in. So um, first and foremost, we'll talk. Uh, Lord Lord Hale did a review um, very recently about um, the competitiveness of uh, London in terms of listings, IPOs, those sort of things. Um, so really, you can go onto it. It'll be on our Instagram. It'll be on our, our LinkedIn channels uh, after this as well. So do check on those, find the links to the reports that he has done and the analysis of those. When you're talking about a dual class share structure, that is basically, in, in effect, what that allows um, companies to do or founders to do or directors of the company is those people that want to maintain that little bit more control. They can have a slightly different share to the uh, the people, the ones that are going to be traded publicly. So when it comes to making those bigger decisions, those shares that the existing directors or the founders have, Um, are um, very much um, in control so they can make those bigger decisions and they have kind of basically deciding votes. So they don't lose quite as much control as they would typically if everyone had the same shares, including themselves. Um, So hopefully that covers off the Lord Hill part of it in the dual class shares. Um, I do want to go into SPACs a little bit more just to kind of get a really clear kind of definition because it's something that was actually asked by one of uh, of the questions that... uh, one of our listeners uh, did write in. So, um, as you say, it basically means that a company doesn't have to do an IPO because it's being kind of, I guess, it's feeding into this sort of shell company. Um, but, it, but it also allows them to raise money. Could you explain kind of the the logistics of that and also why a company potentially wouldn't want to go for
1: an IPO? Yes, absolutely. Um, IPOs are complicated and expensive because let's say I've started my own business uh, off my kitchen table. I've built it up over a number of years, and then in order to make it um, attractive to external investors, I have to put a lot of things in place. I might have I might have taken people on without very formal contracts of employment. I might not really have bothered to protect my intellectual property that closely. Uh, I might not have much of an organizational structure to the business because I'm very entrepreneurial. To make my business, which revolves around me, something that is investable, that investors will want to put money into I need to put in an awful lot of of uh, infrastructure without which I can't comply with listing requirements and basically the prospectus is a kind of brochure that sells my business to the outside world and there are lots of things that investors are going to be wanting to see and to quiz me about before they're going to be prepared to invest in, in, in my business. So in a sense, it's a way for a business to start growing up, but it's a whole area of complication, which a lot of entrepreneurs can't be bothered with now so that I don't actually have to go through the listing process. It's much easier for me if there is a company that is already listed It doesn't do anything. It's got no business, but it has raised lots of money because the managers of that company are themselves good investors. And they say to me, look, we've got this shell company, which is listed. We just like to acquire your business. Your business will be the main operating business of our company. And you don't have to go through that whole process. So that's essentially what it does. It makes it much easier, I think, for entrepreneurial businesses to be open to external public investment without having to go through this extensive process. But then when you look at it from the stock exchanges point of view, they, they need to be reassured that businesses that might be acquired by these shell companies will themselves fulfill requirements on disclosure and provision of financial information. And and that's where the stock exchange may be when it decides whether or not it wants to allow these shell companies, these special purpose acquisition companies to be able to list without any underlying business. Those are the sort of questions that they're going to be looking at.
0: Amazing. I think... We've covered an awful lot in that story. I hope you've kind of kept up with it. There's going to be lots posted with lots of articles, analysis, which you can do a little bit of further reading. So do look at Instagram and LinkedIn. What I'll leave you with on on this one is that if you are kind of um, interested, the the Global Financial Centers Index um, is is something you can have a look at that goes on based on five key areas, um, which analyzes how um, big, how attractive a financial center is. And we've talked a lot about the liquidity and the rules that it has in place. But one of the key five things is human capital. And that is a very kind of niche way of basically saying people, the people, the upskilled people. And this is where it kind of ties back to sort of, I guess, the real world in, in, in all of this is that if we've got fantastic people in the UK. Um, upskilled driven, you would have seen the government um, putting lots of money into kind of schemes to get people upskilled and stuff like that. That is because we've become a much more attractive place to do business. if we 've got fantastic you know techies we 've got fantastic analytical people we've got fantastic marketeers we 've got fantastic people who can raise money for charities all of a sudden across the UK we just become so much more competitive and people want to do business whoever they are in the UK it sounds to me i guess my final question is a is a is a yes or no um, from 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 you chris and i think i know the answer but should we be optimistic about uh, the uk in the future post brexit one word answer hugely amazing i think we'll leave it there for this story and move on to our second one very fittingly from the previous story talking about the government spending. The second topic that we're gonna cover this week is the budget. So a lot of you would have seen, uh, I'm sure all of you would have seen that in the UK, the the budget statement uh, was released last week. Rishi Sunak stood up in in Parliament and delivered it uh, to the House of Commons. Um, and delivered a budget which um, tried to balance, I guess, between ensuring that we're investing, the UK is investing to make sure that we're getting over the pandemic. But then also looking towards the future as well, post-pandemic, how the economy is going to work and also how we start paying back a lot of the money that we've been had to borrow over the last 12 months. The main thing that was picked up in the the budget was the nurses pay, which was the increase of of 1%. And I'm sure you've heard a lot about that. I'm sure you've got your own own opinions on it um, as well. But what we're going to look is look at some of the other aspects that you might have missed, which are going to be really strong for commercial awareness. And where the best place to start is, is Chris asking you, why is the budget so widely looked at by the business world? Why is it important?
1: It, yes, it's quite it's quite strange because you always have a picture of the chancellor holding up their their red their red kind of box their 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 red briefcase uh, on their way to the House of Commons to stand up and in the old days budget speeches could last several hours. Um, this one was actually I thought very succinct. But yes, why? Wh- wh- what is it all about? I mean, the way I look at it is: is the chancellor is basically the the government's CFO, the government's chief financial officer. And the thing to remember about government is it's only got two sources of income for what it does. One is uh, the tax it raises, and the other is the money that it borrows. And so, the chancellor is the kind of national CFO uses the annual budget to tell us uh what their plans are in terms of how they're going to raise money and and what they're going to spend it on and people pay quite a lot of attention to this for a number of reasons one one is it gives a very good indication of where the government think the economy is going to go it's also important from a business point of view because that's when if you have a business or you're in business you know what what changes in in taxation are going to have on your business and and what sort of uh, grants and support there might be and also there's obviously the personal interest one uh what is what is the tax on my income going to be what what duties are going to be raised on on things like alcohol and so on which might affect my personal spending so for all of these reasons the budget tends to be quite a, a focus in the media
0: Yeah, absolutely, completely agree. So there's a couple of things I want to pick up with you, Chris, on this one. The first thing is um, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, outlined that there's going to be significant investment, especially over the next few months with furlough extending to September and a few other bits and pieces to protect us uh, against the um, economic um, pitfalls possibly that come out of uh, the pandemic, the ongoing lockdowns and as we try and return to normal over the next few months. Um, But he also mentioned in what part of the speech that debt is going to rise to 97% over the next couple of years of GDP. We've already spent um, around $407 on the pandemic because of the pandemic um, from the public purse. In terms of this debt figure, is this a major problem? Is there worries about it? I know in Italy the um, the debt percentage compared to GDP is more like a often more like 130 percent, but rising almost to one hundred percent of GDP. Is that a problem?
1: Well, it's very interesting this because in 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 terms of the budget overall, it it was a very measured budget which. Treated as its starting point where we are now. I think a lot of people thought that the Chancellor would start to implement tax raising measures uh, in order to start tackling the debt. And all of the measures that he announced are pretty well postponed for one or more years. And a lot of them are about freezing current tax bans and allowances rather than increasing them. And yet, at the same time, he had this balance that he had to achieve between not wanting to uh, damage an economy that is just emerging or about to emerge from lockdown, but on the other hand, acknowledging that there is a debt. that governments generally uh, uh, want to be seen to be uh, behaving sensibly towards. And the way I look at these things is in very round numbers, so kind of back of the envelope. So. Uh, this debt is expressed as a percentage of GDP. What's GDP? Gross domestic product. It's basically, if we were if we were a business, what is our output? How much money do we make? And of that, government spends roughly a bit below about half. So half of what we produce. Uh, as a country, goes towards government spending to provide all of the services and defence and the police and everything else that that we enjoy the protection of in our day-to-day lives and the NHS and so on. So um, government spending is roughly a thousand billion, so it's roughly a trillion, and annual GDP is roughly two trillion. So these, these are very big, rough numbers. Just to get everything in perspective so our debt over the last 12 months has increased by 400 billion which is getting on for half a year's government expenditure and that's in addition to what the government would would spend so how is the government going to, to tackle this over time what's interesting about if you look at it from a tax point of view if you increased Personal tax by a penny in the pound. So for every pound that we earn, we pay a penny more in tax. That would actually only raise 20 billion. So that's really not going to tackle it very easily. And I think what the Chancellor did by flagging that corporation tax is going to increase, and the point he made was this is a tax that businesses pay. Only on profit that they make, and businesses are able to set against their profit an awful lot of the costs of doing business it's effectively going to be um, tax on the biggest businesses, and he offset that by what he called a super deduction for investment. Now what this means is that as a business, if I buy plant and equipment for example i can set that cost against against my profit which reduces my profit and reduces the tax i pay on it what he said was that over the next two years when businesses spend hundred pounds to invest they will get 130 back from the government so as one commentator said it the government is paying business to invest. Why does the government want to do this? The government encourages, all governments around the world, encourage businesses to invest by allowing them deductions against tax in order for those businesses to remain competitive. So although on the one hand he said I'm going to take more in tax from the profits of businesses, on the other hand I'm going to make it very much worth your while as a business to really invest. And that, of course, will spill through to increased employment and so on. So in that sense, I, I, speaking apolitically, regarded it as quite quite a measured, balanced approach to these things,
0: Amazing. Again, two things that I want to uh, pick up on that. Definitely corporation tax, which we will come back to. Uh, but just firstly on the, on the debt. So at the moment, interest rates are very low. So the cost of borrowing basically is, is very low, which is good for a, a government or global governments that are borrowing lots of money at the moment. The one thing that a few commentators have picked up on is that, and actually I think Rishi himself picked up on, was that if interest rates start to rise, the cost of us, of all this money that we're borrowing goes up. And therefore, in turn, the debt will rise quicker than uh, than possibly set out. And what are your thoughts about that Chris
1: well I thought this was interesting because I heard one commentator say well if interest rates go up then the government's going to be paying 20 billion more because of this debt than it otherwise would well 20 billion in interest on a debt of 400 billion means that you're basically paying five percent and interest rates now are absolutely rock bottom and in some senses negative so I think it's going to take an awfully long time interest rates to reach 5%. And the other thing to remember is that this is, this is just one part of the jigsaw. Why do interest rates go up? They go up in part because the economy is doing really well and is actually on the point of overheating what economists say when they talk about the economy getting too hot what it's like an engine it it needs to be cooled down and 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 you do that by increasing interest rates because that discourages businesses and people from borrowing uh, as much as they did and so therefore spending so for interest rates to get up to five percent that means the economy is going to be doing really well and by doing really well, it's going to be producing an awful lot of tax revenue for the government. So when you look at these things in the round, the, the, the criticism is not, I don't think it's quite as well founded a, as it might seem. And I that makes me feel more reassured about it.
0: Fantastic. And uh, well, that's always good to know. We're very optimistic on this, uh, on this podcast, from um, UK's position in the world to... Um, interest rates on debt um, only going to happen in a, in a very optimistic or very positive um, happenings. So the second thing I want to pick up from what you spoke about was the corporation tax rise, something which um, typically the Conservative government doesn't tend to do as many tax rises, both personal and uh, through corporations. Um, and actually over since the sort of last recession in 2008, 2009, the thinking has been lowering corporation tax, tax on business um, to encourage business to happen in London, in the UK, which is actually a, uh, a strategy, a tactic that has been used in Ireland. Their corporation tax is a lot lower than most other sort of developed countries. Um, Singapore, I think, also is is quite low as well. Again, trying to encourage businesses to have offices, to have activity there, because they know that they can pay less taxation. So, does this corporation tax rise um, suggest a shift away from the um, strategy of having lower corporation tax for UK businesses?
1: Well, I I think what's interesting about this, and I may be completely wrong, but I I think we're, as in many aspects of commercial life, we're reaching a a tipping point now where um, people are, um, if you look at business, the nature of business, it's changed a lot over the last 20 or 30 years. It's much more capital light, where you don't need a lot of capital to build a business. A lot of big tech is like that. It doesn't need a lot of capital. It doesn't have big factories, And also at the same time, these businesses are very high margin businesses. They are making a lot of money. And I think people around the world are beginning to say, well, businesses should pay a a correct amount in tax. Big, big businesses, big multinationals can move their operations around to get the most favorable tax treatment to optimize it. But ultimately, when you think about it, it's not so much the businesses. That suffer from taxation. It's investors because it's a tax on profit, which means that the profit out of which dividends might be paid to investors is going to be that that much less. And investors themselves tend to be um, in, in favour of of fairness. It's a bit like a question I'm often asked is, you know, is business really serious about climate change? And the answer is yes. Business is very serious about climate change because actually there are lots of great opportunities there, which will also help the planet. So I I think looking at what the UK is doing, it's very interesting. Looking at Scandinavian economies, they tend to be relatively high tax, but high public service economies where people expect to pay more in tax if their businesses do very well or if they earn a lot of money. And and in return, they expect public services to be of, of tip top quality. And I think in a sense, all this is saying, all the UK government is saying is, look, This is a country, and it goes back to what we were saying previously, Ben, in in the last story. This is a country where if you come to do business, you've got access to a terrific uh, workforce, terrifically skilled, great education, lots of public services like the NHS supporting it. And all we want you to do, because you're getting the benefit of our workforce, is to pay towards the upkeep of all of these services that ensure that we as a country have a really enthusiastic, energetic and, and skilled workforce. That's the way I see it.
0: Amazing, I think there is lots that we could talk about when it comes to the budget, but what we're gonna do is leave it there on the budget. Let's move on to our third story. So our third story this month is about oil. Um, and understanding why it's important, why it's got a significance in the commercial world. If you've gone on to BBC Business or The Week or whatever you use to um, get your business stories, you'll often see that the main heading, the main uh, bulk of the page, the the top story, so to speak, is is dominated by oil prices or something to do with oil. And if you were looking um, a few days ago, um, you might have seen that oil prices hit a high for the last year or so um, after there was a drone attack on a facility in Saudi Arabia. Um, We don't want to discuss that specifically, um, particularly. What we actually want to talk about is why oil is um, such a big thing for the business press, why it's viewed as something that's so important, um, especially as maybe in a transforming world, a changing world, which we discussed a little bit last week when we talked about kind of green investment um, why it still has a prevalence of prominence in the business world. So I guess, Chris, the question is, why is it so prominent? Why do uh, the business press always pick up on fluctuations in oil price, especially the price of Brent crude? Um, why is that?
1: Yes, certainly, Ben. I mean, I think if I were one of our listeners, I'd be quite upset about the emphasis that is put on oil. I mean, we're supposed to be in, in a world that is taking climate change seriously. So why, why all of this constant harping on about oil? And I have I have to think I have to say I, I think this is changing. But the explanation is that um, in the past oil was regarded as very much a bellwether, which is the term that economists use to to mean a a principal indicator of the global economy. Because if oil consumption was going up, that meant that industry globally was accelerating, which obviously meant the global economy was picking up. And certainly in those days. Um, Oil in the States was very, very cheap. And and the, the US petrol consumer, gas consumer, tended to drive long distances in very big cars that were basically gas guzzlers. So it had implications, the oil price, for the US economy. But I think this is becoming a bit outmoded now because in the way that the term capitalism doesn't really, I think, address what business is about these days because capitalism, the term, means the provision of capital. And actually, a lot of businesses in in the tech world don't need a lot of capital to get going. It's not that they're they're building lots of factories or anything. And so I think oil is declining as the world driver. But it's still the case for the next little while, most of the world will still be going round on oil, until renewables and uh, uh, cleaner, greener energy sources uh, come online in a very big way. Um, So my view is that it is changing because big tech, for example, doesn't use oil. And also that idea of the states being gas guzzling is is out of date because people in states drive smaller, more efficient uh, autos anyway. And if you look at oil companies themselves they are themselves beginning to pivot to, to green energy.
0: I appreciate we're going, that there is a trend moving away from oil, and it's um, needed, and it's uh, definitely important. But actually in 2019, um, it was the most oil-produced um, out of any year so it was the peak of oil production I think it was ninety, ninety-five 95 odd million barrels per day were produced in 2019 and it's, it's about sort of five to ten percent down in 2020 largely because of the pandemic and us not flying businesses not operating quite as as they used to be so I think you make a really valid point that it's still significantly important but you can see that trend sort of maybe we're reaching the peak and hopefully coming down on the other side. So very recently, though, like oil price has gone up. So um, I think when I checked this morning, it was about just under uh, $70 uh, per barrel in the middle of last year, it went down to about 21 22 um, $21, dollars per barrel. My first question is, Is why is it always quoted in, in, in dollars? It, it seems to be that wherever the oil is produced, there's a number of um, oil uh, producing nations, um, but it seems that it's always in dollars.
1: Well, the, 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 the first thing to, uh, and this applies to markets generally, you've got to think about What what is the quality of the commodity that is that the price is being quoted for because oil oil goes there are many many different types of oil depending on how refined they are and the the two most well-known quality marks internationally are called brent crude which is actually from uh, when the north sea was a, a big provider of oil. But I think bigger than that is WTI, which is West Texas Intermediate, which is a particular type of of oil, of refined oil. And so prices are quoted according to the quality of oil uh, and in dollars, mainly because um, it's still the case that business internationally is done in dollars and oil is probably one of the most international businesses of all, and so it's just easier to quote figures in dollars because then people have got the, the, the benchmark that they can measure price increases and declines against.
0: So the tendency is, is that potentially the oil, if it's being produced, it can be produced at a uh, significant uh, level uh, as it was in 2019. But if demand um, goes down... The price should drop and hence why it dropped in the middle of 2020 because demand went down. But oil is one of the few industries where it feels that there's very much a kind of control of supply and a very public, very open kind of control of supply to ensure that the cost of it um, stays at a level which is worth producing. So to give an example, if you continuously produced and produced and produced and you had too much oil, the price would come down because uh, there wouldn't be enough demand for all the oil that's being produced. So does it make the oil industry unique, that, or is that something that you, we see across business?
1: Well, I think for historic reasons, the oil-producing countries have got together in an organization called OPEC. And OPEC is its a pretty sophisticated organization because what OPEC does is, ensure that between the different member countries, many of which are developing economies where oil is a really significant source of income for them and really important, what what OPEC, I feel, does is it tries to optimize the maximum production for those countries that need to produce the most in revenue terms while at the same time ensuring that there isn't overproduction so the price collapses but at the same time it's not in OPEC's interest if the price of oil goes so high that it tips the global economy into recession where oil is so expensive that manufacturers that need it just can't afford it and and won't buy it because if the global economy goes into recession then demand for oil will will evaporate so it's it's uh, a long-standing part of the production pricing mechanism that ensures that overall the right level of supply is provided to those who need it
0: so with that so it sounds like it's hopefully uh, the listeners um have got a sense of why oil is so important why it's traditionally been so important as a metric um that the business press have tracked and businesses have tracked um, but there's i guess another side of it which is linked but maybe slightly separate is the kind of trading of commodities like oil why do traders like commodities as opposed to possibly buying a a share in 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 a company
1: this this is a a really interesting question and i wanted i want to draw a parallel with the foreign exchange market where traders buy and sell currencies what's interesting about the forex market is that because currencies are expressed as a value in relation to each other if one currency is going down in relation to each other, it means the other one is going up, which means that the Forex market is one of the few markets where there is always something that is going up. And if you look at the share market, for example, if shares go down, they tend to go down uniformly, and they all go down. Whereas in the FX market, there is always something going up. And I think commodities are like that. There there is always a commodity that is going up because there's demand for it. So over the last year lithium and copper, prices have skyrocketed because these are necessary components for batteries. And this is all about uh, electric cars. But even when the global economy is tanking, gold is going up. So I think commodity traders like that environment because they can always trade something which is going up. That, that's my take on it. The, the other reason why commodity trading, and it is a huge global industry, The other reason why it's attractive is because there is such a demand for commodities around the world. It is absolutely the bedrock of economic activity. And that means it's a a big environment, a complicated environment, where you need intermediaries in order to enable the stuff that is taken out of the ground to arrive at the end user who needs it
0: fantastic thank you so much for that chris i think that was really interesting to hear about that i hope you found that interesting at home and I hope you've got a better understanding of oil as uh, as something which is important in business but also as a commodity which is trading now we're going to move on to our fun and final story of this month So the final story of this month is actually something that I've got labeled on my briefing notes as Big Brother Meets Supermarket Shopping, um, which I don't think is particularly good in terms of a description of it. Um, But is of course, something that you might have read about in the last couple of weeks is that Amazon opened a grocery store in West London in Ealing somewhere, um, which has technology that means that you don't have to go to a cashier. Um, you don 't actually need people at all, basically, you pick stuff off the off the shelves and um, track through all these kind of cameras and everything like that. It works out that what you 've put in your bag you walk out the store through the scanners and then you get a notification on your on your phone saying that you 've spent this much on these groceries that you 've bought so it is completely the um, the the non-human experience in terms of terms of shopping what's your what's your thoughts there on on it chris just generally as a as a as a thought or as a principle
1: well i i think it's really interesting because it's always interesting when somebody like amazon does something but what i think's really clever about it is that this is actually a very small incremental change to what we've already got because you can nowadays go into a supermarket pick up a a, a barcode reader uh, read all of the stuff you put in in your in your basket go to the checkout and then it downloads everything that you put on the reader you pay and you go out so in a sense this isn't so very different. It's just that you don't have to read the barcodes, the cameras and so on do it for you. And what what I think is really clever about this, I think part part of commercial awareness is kind of looking for innovation and what innovation is going to work. So for example, when ebooks came in, uh, the makers of ebooks were really concerned to try to replicate the experience of turning pages until people got used to just using an ebook where you don't turn the pages and what I think is interesting about this is that it's very clever because it's only a very small change from the way we go around supermarkets and that's why I think it will be it'll be successful because those innovations which require too much of a leap on our part to be able to to use the innovation or integrate it with the way that we live. Those innovations tend not to work. They're too far ahead of their time. Whereas this, it seems to me, is just very nicely gradated, as you would expect from Amazon.
0: Yeah, definitely agree. And actually, uh, talking about the story that we covered at the top of this podcast, um, it's the 11th store that they've opened worldwide. The other 10 are in the US. So good news that Amazon are coming to UK, West London specifically, um, which is which is nice to see that um, big business is still doing doing their business, trying their new innovations in, in the UK, which is um, a nice thing to see. And actually, on that point, I think a lot of people will be worried because we're losing this human interaction. And actually, something that we've spoken about about high streets in previous episodes is that you know, people are looking for the um, experiences when shopping, that kind of interaction, something that we've probably all been missing during during the pandemic. But actually, to someone like me, I'm the kind of person that – when I get a haircut, I definitely don't want any chat between the barbers. I'm completely antisocial. I'm sure there'll be a few people out there like that. That Actually, this way of doing shopping, um, liking the idea of getting out, not just getting it delivered online. I like the idea of seeing what I'm buying and everything like that. But also, um, I can be as antisocial as, uh, as, as I want to be as well um, through it as well. But I, I do take your point on it actually not being far removed from what we have at the at the moment one of the things which i want to cover on the business side of things not so much about my uh, antisocial sort of tendencies um but um what i'll cover on the business side is that one thing that is possibly driving this and in the store actually it's got an amazon collection so any parcel that you've uh, or any products that you've bought from amazon you can go and collect from there rather than it being delivered to your house is that Amazon get a sense of slightly worried about the delivery costs that they are incurring from offering this sort of prime delivery one day or two day delivery. Um, So do you think this is kind of a bit of a wider move, possibly away from Amazon trying to get everything delivered quickly, effectively? and? try and maybe open more of these stores have a kind of physical presence but also a presence where people can go and collect stuff rather than getting it delivered all the time
1: i think i think that's absolutely right because that that the last mile as people who specialize in logistics and supply chain call it is the most expensive bit. how do you get that fulfilled? And you remember, Ben, we were, we were looking in a previous podcast at, at that Deloitte report about how the high street is changing. And, And one of, one of its suggestions was that places where you pick things up will become increasingly important. And that actually ties in with people want an excuse to go out and walk to the shops, and if the excuse is I can pick up that thing that I ordered online, and also have a cup of coffee while I'm doing it, well, that turns it into quite a pleasurable experience. And this goes back to something else we've talked about, which is when retail moves out of the "I need to get this stuff to have it in the fridge" to "Oh, this is an enjoyable experience. This is part of that. This is this is more leisure." than it is just buying stuff. So I think all of these things are linked in that way.
0: There's, there's not a huge amount more that we can say uh, about this uh, story. Particularly, we don't want to be overanalyzing everything, um, looking at different angles until the cows come home. But we think it's a really interesting story, something that hopefully you guys find interesting as well. It's also very aptly named Just Walkout Technology, which, um, something which is so technologically advanced is just in terms of a naming thing it's so simple which i think uh, uh is really nice to see. Um, I think that's going to be it for this month's episode. We really, really hope that you've enjoyed it. Do check out the social media um, on, on the thinking commercially side of things. There's some really interesting stuff, especially from an episode like this, where there's been lots of content. We can help you digest a few bits that come up during the episode. Chris, was it a good one? Did you enjoy it?
1: Very much, as always, Ben. Thank you very much.
0: Perfect. And do remember to send in your questions to myself, ben.triggs at brightnetwork.co.uk. And we will be reading some of those out next time. And we're doing a bit of quick fire stuff with the wonderful Chris Stokes again. What a brilliant episode. As I said in the recording, There was lots of information there, lots of fantastic information. I hope you really enjoyed it. Um, But do head to LinkedIn, to Instagram, to find all the resources that you're gonna need to really delve a bit deeper into all the stories that we have covered in this month's episode. Other than that, have a fantastic month and do get in touch if you want your question read out on next month's episode.